Welcome to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co, and I can't believe we're already on the seventh episode. I actually want to take some time here to stop and thank all the listeners. For a while, I was recording these podcasts and listening to them myself and not really getting a lot of feedback, but I've really begun to get a great deal of feedback from you. I want to continue to encourage people to reach out with questions, comments, concerns they have, or even just ways that I can be doing this podcast better. All that is to say, thank you for your support and for your download. Today, we're going to talk in our seventh episode about Theseus, the legendary Athenian hero who brought the disparate villages of Attica into a political unity and centered them on Athens, so that to be an Athenian citizen meant to be born anywhere in Attica. He's famous for a number of other things, being the slayer of the Minotaur, adventures with the Amazons, having a best friend named Perithuis, but his primary political purpose, and therefore Plutarch's primary reason for telling us about his life, is really what he contributed to Athens. He's also the earliest life, so if you open most complete works of Plutarch, he's going to be the first life you see. He's not the first life that Plutarch wrote, but he is the first life that you see because he goes so far back into the mists of time that, frankly, he's legendary, mythological. It is highly likely that he never existed at all. Unlike all the other people, you know, Romulus may or may not have existed. Numa Pompilius may have existed. Lycurgus probably existed, almost certainly did exist. We just don't know when. But Theseus is like Heracles and Jason and Perseus, one of those heroes that just probably never existed and was a fairy tale, a story, and was more fitting as a symbol. But Plutarch wants to reach all the way back to those symbols because they connect the Athenians to who they were. This would be like us looking back to Jamestown and Roanoke and the early missions in California and Louisiana and Michigan, and really trying to understand America, not through the founding fathers, not through the political ramifications of the Declaration and the Constitution, but through the personal deeds of first white men who explored the Mississippi River, or the Spanish arriving in the Southwest, or pilgrims arriving in New England. Theseus, though, is also someone that Plutarch is going to struggle with in a similar way where we struggle when we look back and we think, okay, in some ways they were heroic, these these people who risked their lives and everything they had to come to this new and strange world, but not all of their decisions are ones that we would still approve of or ones that we would even expect them to approve of back then. So Theseus is definitely a bad boy. A lot of these early lives are not lives that you'll find uh, you're reading aloud to middle schoolers and high schoolers because... <laughs> Their choices are questionable at best at times. And when they are questionable or downright wrong, Plutarch tends to report it and move on a little faster. His goal is virtue. We talked in the first episode where he wants to focus on the virtues of these characters. But for the sake of clarity, I think he often wants to give as much of the story as he can. And you don't end up with the most flattering picture of some of these men. Theseus is definitely in that realm. So let's just uh, jump right in. The family tree of Theseus is tough to reconstruct, but ultimately Athens had still been around for a long time. One of the things I'm going to put in the show notes is that when you reach this far back as a Greek, you're reaching back before they had the Greek alphabet and before they had writing. 
And so you're reaching back into the realm of oral tradition. That takes you back through the time period called the Dark Ages for the Greeks, which was a time after the Bronze Age, after the Minoans and the Mycenaeans, you may have heard of them, their power collapsed in the Aegean Sea and whatever writing they had, which was called Linear B for the Mycenaeans, completely disappeared with them. And even though it had only been used for records and, you know, it's not like they had had a Homer, at least that we know of, the writing and urbanization went into a steep decline and a pretty steady decline until about the 8th century BC. So if you are marking Iron Age Greece, right, which is the name of the era after the Dark Ages, if you're trying to mark the beginning of that, most of the Greeks are going to look to 776, which is easy for us as Americans to remember, for those of you who are American in my audience, because 776 is exactly like our most important date, 1776, and the Declaration of Independence, you just knock the one off the front there. So in 776, what is it that made the Greeks understand that they were they were back? Well, it's actually the Olympic Games. So they will track most of their history and most of their years through whatever Olympiad you were in. So the first Olympiad starts in 776, and then they count from there every four years. So maybe the second year after the second Olympiad. That's what brings us out of the Dark Ages. So we're pretty sure that Theseus is earlier than that. Theseus seems to be some leftover Mycenaean myth. And remember, the Mycenaeans and the Minoans had some of their most powerful cities on Crete. So the association of Theseus and Attica, but not just Attica, Crete as well, because he goes over and you know fights the Minotaur in the labyrinth, that is going to be a connecting point to the Mycenaean and the Minoan past. So we don't have a ton of time to talk about the Bronze Age, but I just wanted to give a little bit of context there, and there will be some more notes about that in the show notes, that as you teach Plutarch, Theseus's life is really probably a Bronze Age myth that got handed down orally, and we can see exactly how much it changed in the different places that it comes from. So that means that his parentage is a little bit difficult to extract, but Aegeus is his father. That's the most important part. And he is a father who was told by the Oracle at Delphi not to have a son, and he has one anyway. So out of shame, he leaves his son and puts a sword and sandals underneath a rock so that Theseus can grow up, come of age, and find them. This is a strange story. Theseus is seen as somebody who is not not wanted. He is not quite an orphan, but he's set up as half an orphan who needs to go find his father. So his first quest is sort of given to him at birth. This is fairly typical of a hero. And so when Theseus comes of age, he goes to Delphi. He gets his hair cut. He acknowledges that he's now a young man. And his mom shows him the swords and sandals under the rock. He then has to decide, do I want to go to Athens? So he's in Troizen. He's across the Saronic Gulf. Which means if you just walk across the Corinthian Isthmus and down into uh, what's called the Argolic Peninsula, you're really close to Troizen, where he is born. So he needs to decide exactly how he is going to get to Athens. The fastest and the safest way is by sea. 
sailing across the Saronic Gulf. You're not going to meet with as, as many bad things. You'll never be out of sight of land, and so it's a pretty safe bet that you'll get there in one piece. But going by land is the dangerous route, and his uncle actually tells him this, which basically makes Theseus decide, I want to go by land, because that's what heroes do. So earlier in the episode, I mentioned Theseus, Heracles, Perseus, and Jason, and we're going to keep coming back to these four men who are famous as the roots of Greek mythology, because if there's one thing that they all have in common, Plutarch is quick to point this out, it's that they make the different lands of Greece, or the different lands where Greeks will ultimately settle, safe for civilization, safe for a polis to be planted. And so they do that by enforcing justice with the emphasis there on force. Heracles is famous for his club, destroying the lion. We're going to see a lot of parallels with Theseus, where actually as he sets off in the land, the very first person he takes on near the polis of Epidaurus is a man who fights with a club. And he tends to just beat people up on the side of the road and take their stuff. So Theseus makes that region safe and uses his club, the club that he steals from the bad guy, for justice now. And he continues on the Isthmus of Corinth. There's a pine bender and uh, an evil pig or an out-of-control pig that he has to kill. Right? He wrestles somebody as he gets closer and closer. And this sort of builds a geography that would have been familiar to an Athenian. We moderns need a map. But ultimately, he's making the entire bay that Athens looks out on and all of the land that's contiguous with that bay, which I call the Saronic Gulf. He's making the whole place safe for Poles to start their political lives. So the final guy that he defeats in this quest for civilization is Procrustes. And he's still famous because he exists in the English phrase, the Procrustean bed. So Procrustes is famous because he pretends to be hospitable, one of those ancient virtues, hospitality, very important. He pretends to be hospitable and to invite you in for the night. But if you don't fit on his bed because you're too long, he cuts you until you do fit and you die. If you don't fit on his bed because you are too short, he stretches you until you do fit and you die. And strangely, nobody was Goldilocks in this story and fit Procrustes' bed just right. So Theseus ties Procrustes to his own bed, chops him up to fit, and Procrustes is dead. So at this point, Plutarch points out to us that Hercules is the direct parallel here, where each of these evil men, if they bend pine trees and make them snap back and kill you, if they wrestle, if they fight you with a club, if they kill you with a bed, <laughs> they are all killed by the very weapons that they use to commit their evil. And so this is a type of redemption of that evil to say that we could kill the monsters and the fiends by using their own weapons, their own tools against them. Some would call it fighting fire with fire. But it's also helpful that the world isn't completely savage because when Theseus arrives at the river Cephasus, it's the very first place outside of where he was born that he receives real hospitality. And it's important to realize that the river Cephasus is very close to the ancient city of Athens. And so there's an association there where Athens is perhaps called to a higher reality of hospitality than perhaps the other lands around Greece are. However, once he gets into the city of Athens... It gets real again and very dangerous because Medea is there. Yes, the Medea from the Jason story. So there's another parallel with a hero. 
and she basically convinces Aegeus, who does not recognize his now-grown son, to poison her son. There are some great and famous paintings about this moment where Aegeus recognizes Theseus, because as he's about to drink, he takes his own sword out to cut the meat that he's going to eat. And Aegeus recognizes the sword as the one that he buried under the rock, and he slams the goblet out of Theseus's hand. And then at that point, Aegeus has an heir. Aegeus and Medea were, had been married, it's implied, but had no children. So this full-grown heir that shows up immediately makes everybody else who would have gotten the throne revolt. And so this guy named Pallas, who has 50 sons, revolts, and we get the first internecine or civil war inside of Athens, which Plutarch uses as an excuse, I think, to build up some of the famous areas around Athens. If anybody's been to an old city, you know that it's fairly easy to do the historic tours where you go, I'll give DC as an example, because I live near there, and you can see, obviously, within driving distance of DC, Thomas Jefferson's first home, George Washington's home until he died. You can see the places where Congress first met in DC, where Congress ran away during the War of 1812, and people can take you to all of these places. So Athens becomes like that for Plutarch in this life. He wants to go back to these earliest battles and say, hey, for those of you who live in this neighborhood, just so you know, this is where Theseus fought the men who revolted against him. And so they can associate their neighborhood with this very early and important battle in their own history. Then we shift gears and Theseus has made the Athenian people accept him as the heir to the throne. Aegeus is still the king. But then we get the bad news, right? Aegeus is elated to be reunited with his son, glad that his son is of such a heroic temperament. But almost immediately, the nine years roll by and the Minotaur is owed his feast of seven Greek boys and seven Greek girls. Everyone grumbles that Aegeus has always had to send these the last two times. So King Minos has demanded the tribute the last two times and has never himself had to send a son. But now that he has a son, oh, God forbid he lose his son, right? The people think. And so Theseus volunteers to go to Crete and to take on the Minotaur. We get in Plutarch a little bit more explanation than you get in your average myth. So a lot of the Minotaur story often starts with just the fact that King Minos was demanding that the Athenians send him seven boys and seven girls. And your kids might ask, well, why? Well, Plutarch covers that why, so that's kind of nice. He also really struggles with the fact that Minos is a clearly evil king. And there's a couple really funny things that he concludes from it. One is that Athens, which later in the you know, centuries later becomes famous for its poets and its philosophers and in general its writing is not the city you want to get on the bad side of. So one of the reasons he thinks that Minos gets a bad rap is because Athens controls the narrative afterwards and Minos can't defend himself or the Cretans can't defend themselves because the Athenians are the better poets and the better philosophers and the better speech writers. And so don't get on the bad side of a literary city. He says almost those exact words. But it's interesting that Plutarch even takes the time to defend Minos, and uh, I wanted to give some context as to why. 
he mentions first the authority of the poets. So he says that Homer calls him a just man. Hesiod calls him a just man. And so it's strange that the Athenians make him this this evil enemy who's demanding human sacrifice to be appeased. There's another reason, though, and that that's Plutarch's major philosophical hero is Plato. And Plato sets uh, at the end of the dialogue, the Gorgias, he, through the mouth of Socrates, tells a story about the final judgment, the final judgment of souls when they go to decide whether they'll go to not eternal bliss, but thousand years of bliss or a thousand years of pain, depending on how they had lived their lives on earth. Well, King Minos is the judge in the underworld. Right? He He's actually, that's so famous that Minos gets picked up throughout in a bunch of more underworld scenes. Homer, Virgil, and even Dante puts him in hell. And so Plutarch feels this strong urge to explain the conflict that he sees between the fact that the Athenians obviously hate Minos and were watching him do an evil act and the fact that almost all of the other poets report him as the most just king who ever lived. He goes through the rest of the story of Theseus. He meets Ariadne. He gets the ball of thread. He fights the Minotaur, kills it, uses the thread to come back out, frees everybody, sails home, and then makes the most fatal and silly mistake. He forgets to switch out the sail that would signal to his father that they were coming home successful in their venture. So because they keep the black sail on the ship and they don't change it to white, Aegeus, who was looking out for his son's ship coming back from the sea, throws himself from the cliff into the sea that will then bear his name, the Aegean Sea. So there's the other aspect of mythology that we get is that these mythological stories often give us the sources or the reasons behind certain things. And so it's very satisfying to get the story behind the why question that's fairly natural to the human condition. So Theseus returns, he parks his ship, and obviously now he's the king. So there's a slight excursus where, and this is something I ask my students every time we teach Theseus, Theseus parks his ship and it's the same ship stays parked there from, let's say, the 8th, 9th or 8th century B.C., all the way down to the time of Demetrius of Phalerum, which is about the 3rd century BC. And over that amount of time, you have, you know, a board rots and it gets replaced and the nail pulls out as the board rots. So the nail gets replaced and the mast falls down and the sails are replaced and the ropes are replaced or lines if you're actually a sailor. And you're starting to see where this is going, but Plutarch really loves that the philosophers start to use the ship of Theseus as a philosophical problem to answer the question, at the time of Demetrius of Phalerum, let's say, 3rd century BC, is the ship of Theseus, which has had every board and nail replaced, and sail and rope, every single piece of it has been replaced, but is the ship of Theseus still the ship of Theseus? Or is it something else entirely? And I'm just going to leave it there. But we have a great discussion that usually leads to matter and form as a distinction where the arrangement of the parts seems to be something necessary to the essence of the thing. And this is a particularly good illustration of that. It's very concrete, though, so you can start doing that kind of philosophy with pretty young ages. And Plutarch just introduces it right there. More proof that this These biographies that he's writing are the daughters of philosophy as much as they are the daughters of history.
So Theseus is king. He wants to unite Athens and Attica in this government where he's the authority. So he centralizes the authority in Athens by putting the political meeting places there. But he also institutes feasts that they'll have in common. The Panathenaic Festival is probably the most famous one. And that is the festival that involves a giant procession for the whole city, including the best and brightest of their military, the best and brightest of their young women. And they process all the way up to the Parthenon and they make a new robe for the statue of Athena there. And they robe her or they put the robe on her and there's a big celebration of all things Athenian and all things Athena. So what else does he do? He establishes three classes of citizens, the nobles, the craftsmen, and the farmers. He gives the nobles the power over law and religion. But we're starting to see that this city to which Theseus had come as a refugee now has a larger political purpose as a city for refugees. In the Dryden translation, he says he opens Athens as a commonwealth of all nations. We are going to see that that is almost the exact opposite of what Sparta sets out to be. And there's a real parallel between Athens and Rome here when we get to Romulus, who is Theseus's parallel, by the way. So Athens and Rome, these two cities that grow to ultimate greatness, even though Athens's greatness is a lot, has a lot shorter time period than Rome's, are in part so great because they are open to others. At least Plutarch doesn't say that explicitly, but there's definitely a tone where you get that. They're, they're welcoming to the stranger. They're welcoming to the foreigner in a way that Sparta absolutely rejects all foreign ideas that don't come from Lycurgus when we get to his life. So the rest of the life is really an examination of the rest of the adventures of Theseus. What adventures did Theseus actually go on? What did he do that was true? What did he do that was false? And it's really tough for Plutarch to thoroughly examine these these questions. So I'm just going to give a few. He says, for sure, Theseus had the adventure with the Amazons. He stole an Amazonian woman and he ran back with her to Athens. And the second battle that takes place in Athens, where we follow even more of these neighborhoods, the, the academy and different places, occurs in Athens against the Amazonians. So they win and they make peace with Hippolyta, or Plutarch gives another name, but he also provides the name Hippolyta. And we can see, for those of you who've read Midsummer Night's Dream, this is one of the sources probably that Shakespeare had at his disposal for that framing device of the whole play, which is that Theseus and Hippolyta are the king and queen of Athens, and they sort of get the political structure around it before all of the kids and the fairies run off into the forest. We have a number of false adventures that Theseus did not participate in. He was not a member of Jason's crew and the Argonauts, okay? He probably did not participate in the adventure of Meliager and the Boar, which is reported in the Iliad Book 9 and Ovid's Metamorphoses Book 7 or 8. I'll put that in the show notes. And the other and last most famous adventure from these uh, Bronze Age myths is the seven against Thebes. And Plutarch wants to assure us that he did not participate in the seven against Thebes, though he may have helped bury some of the bodies. So Theseus then becomes this sort of, if you're ever a, telling a story about Athens in a mythical time, just put Theseus as the king. Now he's the most famous one. And that's how Plutarch, I think, wants to 
see that he ended up being associated with almost any mythical story where anybody interacted with an Athenian or with Athens. And so we we should get more clear on what he did do after talking about the women he didn't kidnap and the woman he did, the Amazonian woman, and then talking about the adventures he didn't go on. Now Plutarch wants to cover the adventures he did go on. So many of those adventures start because of his friendship with Perithuis. His friendship with Perithuis has a lot of common tropes we've heard of before in male friendships. I'm thinking of the Epic of Gilgamesh, but you may also just be thinking of some guys you knew in high school. When you think of Perithuis purposely steals from Theseus, runs away so that he can challenge him to a physical duel. The two of them see each other, realize that they are a physical match for each other, and embrace as bros rather than fight. Right, The Epic of Gilgamesh happens slightly differently, and Kidu and Gilgamesh fight and then decide that they're friends, but... We all have seen either one of these tropes can occur, and it's a trope because it's true. It's a trope because it happens in real life. Two guys beat each other up, and then they're friends. There's a mutual respect that involved in the physical test. So as he's friends with Perithuis, he then seizes Helen or has the Amazonian wife, however you want to slice that, and his he needs to get a wife for his friend Perithuis. And so they go to this kingdom of Molossus, which is northwestern Greece near Epirus. And it's really odd because everything in Molossus sounds like Hades. As a matter of fact, the king of Molossus is named Hades. His wife is named Persephone, and their daughter is named Cora, all of which look back to the myths about the underworld and Ceres losing her daughter, Persephone, to Hades for six months of the year. But anyway, he ends up in Molossus where he is imprisoned. And so we're unclear as to whether or not Theseus is actually imprisoned in Molossus or if this is some leftover of Theseus dies and is imprisoned in Hades. But he's imprisoned in Molossus by Hades. Hercules rolls by and decides to free him. And we get his friendship with Perithuis leads him to find Perithuis a wife. And Perithuis invites him to the wedding and he also invites Lapiths and Centaurs. This is another famous myth that's going to end up on decorating some of the temples in Athens. But at the wedding feast, the Lapiths, who are regular men, and the Centaurs are at first getting along, but the Centaurs get drunk. They start accosting the women, and the Lapiths defend them with their spears. So Theseus goes and fights on the side of the Lapiths, slaughters a bunch of lustful Centaurs, and teaches them a lesson. When Theseus returns to Athens, because he has stolen Helen, her mythical twin brothers, Castor and Pollux, are causing problems in Athens, basically sowing the seeds of political dissent. And Theseus basically shakes his sandals from the Athenians, cursing them and allows them to have what they want or get what they deserve. It's not super clear. Plutarch leaves it up to us. He runs away to the island of Skyros and on the island, he's either pushed off a cliff or falls off a cliff and dies. So it's a strange end, honestly, for a man. But especially, particularly if you take his foray into the Molossian land as um, a sign that he may have already died once, dealing with his death is a difficult thing for Plutarch to do, especially because Plutarch is not going to be one to agree with the accounts that deify heroes. I think he's fine with hero worship when it happens, 
but he's not one who can assent theologically to a man becoming a god. And this actually may go a long way to explaining why he doesn't talk about the life of Heracles. So Heracles is notably missing and he chooses Lycurgus instead to talk about the founding of Sparta. He doesn't go further back than Lycurgus as we might expect him to into the life of Heracles, cleaning up the life of Heracles and trying to make Heracles the consummate Spartan or the ultimate Spartan that would honestly be hard to do since Heracles is known for being dumb and drunk a lot. And that would be a very difficult thing to square with the simple Spartan lifestyle and the abstemious nature of their approach to food and drink. So anyway, um, Theseus is virtuous enough to make the cut, and Heracles did not seem to be. Also, I think Plutarch obviously has much more respect for Athens as a political force, though it shouldn't weaken his respect for Sparta. The number of Athenian lives he did is easily 10 or 12 off the top of my head, and I know that he only did four Spartan lives. So while Sparta was important for what it created, it doesn't seem like they made the same number of great leaders as Athens produced. So some of the big questions as we end this life are really what is the role of mythology as a means of examining truth? Because Plutarch is still looking for what is true about what it means to be Athenian. And so the difficulty there is sort of the rationalizing that we'll do with some of the myths and trying to force them too easily to fit the analogies or the or the allegories that we want them to. So Plutarch looks back and he's got to look you know, earlier than Plato, earlier than Socrates, earlier even than Homer, and try to find a common thread of Athenian nature in this. And I would say he succeeds on a political level as a city open to refugees, as a city in which Theseus founds the elements of democracy, and then in his tyranny and pride grows into a haughty king. But Ultimately, there are so there are political echoes that are easy to see. Some of the echoes in battle are easy to see. So Theseus tamed a bull in Marathon, and then later during the Battle of Marathon, he seems to come back and be fighting on the Greek side. At least some people claim to have seen him. So making him the patron hero of Athens is an interesting choice because your only other options are not from Athens. Your only other options are Jason, Heracles, and Perseus. And the final one is really what, why do we need heroes? This is a larger question and one that you could really ask of all the biographies, but particularly of these mythical lawgiver founder types. Why do we want to set them up as heroes and what is it that they are saving us from? And for Plutarch, I think a lot of the answer lies in the beginnings of virtue or the roots of virtue, because virtue is that which helps us order ourselves correctly and put our reason at top, our, our passions in the middle and our appetites at the bottom. And the primary means that most people find good habits and good virtue is through the laws of their state. So I think Plutarch, like all ancient philosophers, is going to see philosophy as something that 
can only happen for the cultured and leisured elite because they're the only ones that have the time to make the decisions. But the power of a good polis and good laws will encourage all of the citizens to be virtuous because Plutarch agrees with Aristotle that virtue is first and foremost a habit. So it's something you have, something you do, something that's almost automatic or automatic and leads to your happiness. So understood in that definition of virtue, you don't need every person to be a philosopher in order to be happy and good. But what you absolutely do need are good laws and harmonious citizens working together. So that'll actually dovetail really nicely with next episode, which will be Lycurgus, where we'll see a very, very different approach to building towards that same end, which is happy citizens working together in harmony. That pretty much wraps it for this episode. Uh, You can find more information about the podcast at grammaticus.co slash podcast or plutarch.life. If you want to look up a specific episode, you can just type in plutarch.life slash theseus and that'll take you to the Theseus episode. That's also might be a fun way to share on social media. So I know I've been asking for reviews of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I have gotten awesome response, actually. Thank you so much for all the five-star reviews and the ratings. I really appreciate them. I'm told that they help other people find the podcast. What I would encourage you to do now is to take any of the podcasts that you think if you know somebody who's going to be teaching Theseus this year, or you know somebody who is reading the life of Solon, just feel free to send them a link to the podcast and say, hey, I found this helpful. I think you would too. Or if you're in Facebook groups or homeschool groups where you know they'll be teaching Plutarch, I would love it if you shared the resource that um, I'm creating here. So you can always contact me at uh, tom at grammaticus.co if you have any questions or you want me to do a specific episode. Uh, I'm looking at being a guest on other podcasts and I'm looking at bringing guests on to my podcast so that we can have a little bit more of the dialogue feel. Thanks for listening and I do hope that I've inspired you to open Plutarch and let his lives affect yours. Yours.